But today, we're going to talk about the mystery of the origin of life. I was asked to do this. I like to come to churches and speak more about the Bible, but <clears throat> the purpose of this is to make sure that people aren't drawn astray by, by some of the things that people say. Just to give you a background, we work on a number of different areas in my own lab. We work on something called laser-induced graphene. This is spawning five different companies being able to convert any material, even a piece of bread, into graphene. Graphene are single atomic sheets of graphite that, that are conductive and lightweight. We've learned how to split carbon nanotubes longitudinally and make graphene nanoribbons. I'll show you some of the work that we can do with that in medicine. Uh, we've worked on computer memory. This is now a public company. This is two-terminal memory for ultra-dense computer memory. We work on traumatic brain injury and stroke. Traumatic brain injury is the number one disabler of older adults. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, of the younger adults is traumatic brain injury. Stroke is the number one disabler of older adults. So we work in both of those areas. There's a company starting around this technology. <clears throat> There's already a company started around this one. This is converting any carbon source into graphene. This is going to really, really impact and change a lot. This is a brand new company just starting. We've learned how to take plastic waste and convert it into a material that can trap carbon dioxide from the air and lower the, the CO2 in the air. Uh, this is graphene quantum dots. This is already a public company. This is, a this is a, a, a carbon nanotubes growing from graphene. This is a going into battery technology right now. There's a battery company that we've started just south of Houston uh, that's carrying that on. We work on these little cars. These little cars are two nanometers long by three nanometers. And <clears throat> what we can do is we can shine a light on them and the motor will spin. That motor actually spins at three million rotations per second. <clears throat> this is greatly slowed down, and it will push it across the surface. And you, then we're using this in medicine. We're using a peptide to target a certain cell surface and drill through the cell and kill it. So we're killing cancer cells. This is a bacterium. A bacteria. Uh, these these uh, highly drug-resistant bacteria are supposed to be killing 10 million people a year by the year 2050. Uh, so we've devised a way to drill right into them and bust up their cell wall and kill them. Uh, this is uh, 3D printing of graphene. This slide shows you a, uh, uh, this is, this is a, a rat that has had its spinal cord completely cut in two at C5 at the base of the neck. We put one drop of graphene nanoribbons, which is a 1% solution of graphene nanoribbons, in polyethylene glycol, <clears throat> and then his brain will, her brain will start remapping the connection, so after two weeks, walking again. Totally cut in half spinal cord, walking again after two weeks. <clears throat> and then, so, and this was an 18 out of 21 on a mobility scale. After three weeks, this rat was doing a, a, had a 19 out of 21 on a mobility scale. So you'll see this transition point where this rat will, will, you know, she's doing just fine. So, uh, this is now transferred, translated into a company. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make the lame walk, the blind see, and the deaf hear. And also have the poor, the gospel preach to them. So that's what we'd like to do. This is a new company called, uh, uh, called Neurocords. This is based on, in Israel right now. Okay, with that, this is going to be turned into a technical lecture. With intent, I'm not going to mention God, gods, or an intelligent designer. Science will be used to critique science. Because if I mention God, people will say, oh, he had to bring in the baby Jesus to talk about this. No, I will use science to address science. And then back after I'm done with this, then we'll circle back to the Lord. This is a car. This is not even all the parts of a car. Some of it is already constructed, but this is a lot of the parts of the car. Could you put this back together? Very few people could. What if you had no tools? Could you put this back together? What if you had no directions? Could you put it back together? <clears throat> this is simple compared to a cell. A cell is far more complex than this. 
<clears throat> but I want you to think about this in relation to a car. You see there's different kinds of materials here. So there's metals, there's steel, there's aluminum, there's rubber, there's plastics, there's fabric. There's, <clears throat> there's basic components here that have to be put together, diff different materials, and then you have to put this thing together. Now, imagine that all those parts were not conveniently placed there, but they were spread throughout the earth. Some of them are in the bottom of the ocean. You don't know where. Some of them are on top of a mountain. You don't know where. And you've got to find all of these and reconstruct that car. But there's another problem. Some people say, well, all of this came from different parts of outer space. Okay, so we'll spread that car out over outer space. Collect all that and put it back together. And the thing is, they don't stay around for very long. The parts go bad. Things decompose. You can understand that they rust out. They're no good anymore. Things rust out. The same thing happens in chemistry. And, and, and So, what is the origin of life? Where did life come from? So, scientifically, we have to think of a cell. A cell is a living, a living organism. This is the basic uni unit of life, a cell. A cell is highly complex. It is like a factory. So, in other words, you go into a factory, how does material get from point A to point B in a factory? Well, what happens is, there are these overhead hangers and materials are going back and forth. The same thing happens in the cell. There will be microtubules that form to bring material from point A to point B. And as soon as the material is done, then that microtubule will break down and assemble somewhere else. You say, well, why don't you leave that microtubule? Because you have to have it to rebuild somewhere else. And if you put too many microtubules, the cell would become too stiff, couldn't operate. You have mitochondria where you have, you have uh, uh, the, the, the energy stations for the cell. You have the nucleus with the DNA. And, and the RNA in there. You have protein synthesis regions. So you have all of this going on. It is highly complex, much more complex than a car. If we're going to talk about the origin of life scientifically, somehow we've got to say, how do you make a cell? So how do you make a cell? Well, first of all, you have to have the basic components. But molecules don't care about life. Organisms care about life. Chemistry, on the contrary, is utterly indifferent to life. Without a biological entity, Acting upon them, molecules have never been shown to evolve toward life. Never. Abiogenesis is pre-biology. It's before biology takes place. There are no enzymes. There are no cells. We just got to make the four classes of chemicals. So you have to make the four classes of chemicals. So how is this done? <clears throat> well, there's a study... <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a study called Origin of Life Research, and everything that is done in Origin of Life Research can be summed up by this. They purchased some chemicals, generally in high purity, from a chemical company. But remember, early Earth didn't have that. You didn't have that. You mix those chemicals together in water in high concentrations or in a specific order under some set of carefully devised conditions. It's like that car. All those pieces, you don't have those pieces. They buy them. They buy them. You have to make these in, in origin of life experiments. But what they do is they buy them and they'll put them in high concentrations, put them all together in the same place, not spread out throughout the universe. They'll obtain a mixture of compounds that resemble, that have a resemblance to one or more of the basic four classes of chemicals needed for life. For, so for life, you need four chemicals, carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino acids, and lipids. You need these four basic classes of chemicals. Just like for a car, you need to have steel, you need to have aluminum, you need to have fa fabric, you need to have plastic. You have to have basic classes of chemicals. You need these four basic building blocks to, 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 build, to make life. And then they publish a paper making bold assertions, just like Miller did in 1952, which was a great experiment, but we've come nowhere in 67 years. 
They engage with the ever-gullible press to dial up the nod of extrapolations. You watch the mesmerized laypersons exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life was formed. They do not. They really do not. If you think, oh, well, scientists understand this, they do not. You, then they encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful, deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into chemicals and then merge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. All of this is fallacious. It's fictitious. It's not real. We have no idea how life forms scientifically. Absolutely no idea. <clears throat> the synthesis problem is this. Molecules that compose living systems always show, show, almost always show homochirality. That means you have a left hand and a right hand mirror image of molecules. Only the left-handed ones will be there. What happened to the right-handed ones? It's very hard to make just the left-handed. If you have, make the right-handed, which is just the mirror image of it, a right hand won't fit in a left-handed glove. Very hard to make these in the lab like that. When building molecular systems, you need constant redesigns to take the synthesis back to step one. So if you make a mistake, you have to go all the way back to step one. It's Once you put a moiety on a molecule, if it's not the right moiety, you can't just take it off. A lot of times you go back to step one. The synthetic reactions don't know how to stop the current course of progression or why to stop. There's no targeted goal. So think about abiogenesis, what it has to do. It has to go toward a cell, but it doesn't know what it's going toward because it has no brain. All right? So it has to make molecules for life, but it doesn't know what molecules. But it's just happily going along and mixing molecules together. But it has no target. So even if it were to hit the target, it would just take it on to something else. It doesn't know to stop. Time. Often people say, well, with enough time, with billions and billions of years, it will solve it. It will not. Because time is actually the enemy for organic synthesis. Just like those parts, the car parts, sit out for a few years in the atmosphere and they decompose. Chemicals do exactly the same thing. You can see decomposition over a period of weeks. Decomposition. They caramelize, they decompose, particularly the carbohydrates. A prebiotic system has no ability to easily purify the structures. If you can't purify molecules, you can't go on to the next step. Chemists do this all the time in the lab because the, the other compounds that are in there end up sucking up your starting material. Reagent order addition is essential. So you're baking a cake. You can't just say, well, I think I'll, I'll just add, I'll, I'll just take the icing and I'll add flour to it here and eggs. No, you've got to put the icing on last. You understand? That makes a difference. Chemistry is the same way. There's a prescribed order. How does an, a, a, a world where there's no mind there put these things together? How does it know? It, it, it doesn't know. It doesn't know how to put these things together. So, reagent or addition order is, is essential. The parameters for temperature, pressure, solvent, light have to be done. The characterization is essential. You have to be able to characterize after each step. This is important for synthesis. This is what an abiological world where no mind is, is beset with. And no scientist understands this. None. The mass transfer problem. So you start out, say, with a kilogram of material, 2.2 pounds of material. And you bring it on five steps, and now you're down to two milligrams of material because you have to try many different things. And so what do you do? So you write down in your laboratory book all the ways that worked, and then you start again with a kilogram, and now you can bring it through in high yield because you've, you've figured out the way to do this. So nature's going along, say, for 500 million years, and it gets to a certain carbohydrate, and it says, wow, I ran out, I'll have to make more. Well, how do I make more? I never kept a laboratory notebook. 
so it doesn't know how to go back and make more. This is the problem that it's beset with. Nature keeps no laboratory notebook. So this is just the one small part. I showed you those nanocars, and this is the motor of those nanocars where you shine the light and it spins at 3 million rotations per second. So you see, I'm going to just take one step here, going from this compound to this compound, one step here in the synthesis. Here's what it looks like. This is a condensed synthesis that would be good for a chemist to use, a synthetic chemist. To an oven-dried three-neck round-bottom flask charged with hydrozone 33 and magnesium sulfate, this amount was added dichloromethane. The suspension was added quickly to manganese dioxide at 5 degrees centigrade. The reaction flask was immediately immersed and stirred in a cold bath ranging from minus 15 to minus 10 degrees for 1.5 hours. After this period, the reaction mixture was cooled to minus 50 degrees centigrade and transferred it. And you say, well, what's going on here? How come you, you, you're cooling and you're warming and you're cooling? Well, we just like to do that. No, we have to do that. If you don't do that, the molecules don't form. So if you go back here, there's all these steps. These are at low temperature. These, this one's at 130 degrees. This one's at 60 degrees. Every different reaction takes a different temperature. How does that happen in an abiological world? Nobody knows. We're lost. We have no idea how that happens. Then you have to characterize. So you have to figure out what's the structure of these compounds. Well, we have these big machines that cost a couple million dollars, figure out the structure, and they give us a bunch of peaks. You stick them in a tube, you stick them in the machine, and it gives you these, these peaks. And from these peaks, you can figure out the molecular structure. All of your pharmaceutical companies have gone through, go through this with, with, with the pharmaceuticals that we take to figure out the molecular structure. How does this happen in an abiological world? Nobody knows. Right now in biology, what happens in biology, you have enzymes will come and recognize a compound, and if it's not the right compound, other enzymes will chop that up to make sure that it doesn't get incorporated in the cell. But remember, this is pre-biology. This is pre-enzymes. Nobody knows how this was done. This is what we had to write to show the characterization of this molecule. Here's what we had to write to convince our colleagues that we got what we got from those peaks. <clears throat> this is what we had, but that's just part one. This is part two. So it took these two pages just to convince them that we got what we got. How does that happen without a brain in a biological world? Nobody knows. In this paper, we had 281 pages, just like the two pages that I just showed you, of characterization data to show how we made the light-driven motor. How does that happen in an abiological world? Nobody knows. If you say, well, scientists know. I'm a scientist. We don't know. We don't know. All right, so here's another thing. When we first made this nanocore with this motor, we would shine a light on this. This motor would spin, but only 1.8 revolutions per hour. So we pull out this sulfur atom, close that ring down, and now it rotates at 3 million rotations per second. So very small changes make a big difference. But how do you pull that sulfur atom out? Well, if you're on a, on a, on a whiteboard, you could just erase that and get it. But that's not how chemistry is done. You have to go all the way back to step one. So if, if something were to be built wrong and it took 2 billion years to get there, too bad. You're stuck. You've got to start all over again. But it doesn't even know what it's going toward because it's mindless. Then you, so say you had all the four classes of chemicals. Now what are you going to do? Now you have to assemble them. So how do you assemble them? Well, you make what people call a protocell. 
So a protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. Sometimes when you shake up oil and water, you can see these little spheres, these little bubbles. Those, those, may, be, those may be these little uh, uh, the, the, these vesicles. That's something analogous to this. Uh, most protocell experiments are like this. People buy the compounds and then they publish a paper saying they've made a vesicle and they suggest it's like early form of life and they engage with the media to hype it up and the layperson says, wow, they just made a cell. They didn't make a cell. A cell was not made. They made a vesicle. That's it. It has very little relation to anything that's a real cell. So there, there's a complex cellular membrane. Every cell in our body has a membrane like this. This membrane is amazing. Just amazing. It is, it is a, a, a bilipid membrane layer. But it also has all these other structural features to it. Whenever people make protocells, they use one type of lipid. There are 40,000 different lipids that have been, been identified in cells. The lipids that surround the organelles, the subunits, the smaller units in the cell, are all different. The top face and the bottom face, the outside face and the inside face, are different compositions. So the composition here is different than the composition here. Nobody knows how that was ever done. We can't even do that in the laboratory. We can't. But every protocell experiment that's ever been done, they've made it homogeneous. They've made it the same inside and out. You say, well, the real cell can't work that way. And they're, shh, shh, don't say that. I mean, this is the real thing. It can't work that way. Lipids, they have this non-symmetrical distribution. And then there's a bunch of proteins that go through here that allow ions to flow in and out of that cell, that allow small molecules in and out to keep the ionic pent... Nobody's ever made these protocells and sticking in the proteins and these ionophores through there. There's a bunch of these glycans hanging off. I'm just showing a few here in this cartoon. But the cell is covered with these sugars, these glycans. These are highly complex, and this is how cells recognize each other. There is so much information stored. You've heard of DNA storing a lot of information. That's nothing compared to the information that can be stored in sugars, in carbohydrates. Just D-pyranose, just the single D-pyranose, if you have six of them, can have over one trillion constitutional isomers. So over one trillion ways can be hooked up. You say, well, what's a trillion? Most people don't even know the difference between a million, a billion, and a trillion. Let me put it in time so that you'll understand this. Say you were to ask somebody to marry you, and they say, well, wait a million seconds, and I'll tell you. That's 11 days. Okay, I'm cool. You'll tell me in 11 days if you'll marry me. If they had said, I'll tell you in a billion seconds, that's 32 years. All right? So that's kind of different. If they had said, I'll tell you in a trillion years, that's 32,000 that, 32, years. 32,000 years. So you go from a million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is, is, is 32 years. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Do you feel that difference now? This has a trillion different ways that it can be hooked together. Just six units of this. With DNA, if you have six of the same... Homogeneous units, A, 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 A. There's only one way that you can do that. With carbohydrates, you can do that over one trillion different ways. If it's wrong, the cell dies. How did it get like that? No scientist knows because there's no enzymes yet to do this. 
We're clueless on this. So if you think scientists understand the origin of life, we do not. There's the interactomes, the non-covalent interactions between these, these molecules in a cell. If you just look at the interactomes in a single yeast cell, which is a simple cell, just the protein-protein interactomes. This is the way molecules line up next to each other to pass information between them. There are 10 to the 79 billion combinations. Well, what is that? That is a one with 79 billion zeros after it. That's the number of combinations. Well, how big a number really is that? All of the elemental particles, not on Earth, but in the entire universe, all of the elemental particles in the universe, if you were to add them up, would be 10 to the 90. This is 10 to the 79 billion. This is a one with 90 zeros after it. This is a one with 79 billion zeros after it. Nobody knows how this happens. Nobody knows. All right, proto-turkeys. Origin of life protocells assembly is akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, adding a gallon of turkey broth, warming, sticking in a few feathers, and suggesting that a live turkey will eventually come gobbling out. If given enough time, or that a proto-turkey or extant turkey has been synthesized. We know that that is utterly ridiculous. And that is what protocell experiments are. Utterly ridiculous. Critical for life also is information. It's not just having DNA and RNA, it's the sequence in which these are hooked together. That gives us the information on how the enzymes are made that are going to build cells. Whenever cells are forming, they take that DNA and when they divide into two cells, they'll partition that and they'll split it between the new cells. That information is constantly transferred. We have no idea scientifically where the information code came from. It's like taking a box of alphabetic letters or taking a book like War and Peace. One has the alphabetic letters that, that mean something. One is just a box of random letters. If you have the nucleic acid, you just have a box of random letters. Nobody knows how you got those hooked together. First of all, nobody knows how to hook them up together uh, with it, without enzymes in, in, a, in a clean way. But the other thing is that nobody knows how to, how, to, um, how to get this code. All right, so try to build a cell even hypothetically. A dream team can't do it. So you, what you do is you call together all the smartest scientists in the world and you give them a dream team. We'll say, we'll give you an unlimited budget. We'll give you, give you $100 billion. Go ahead, can you build us a cell? You've got you to make all the raw materials and put together a cell. They go, no, there's no way. Okay, we'll give you the raw materials. We'll give you all the carbohydrates you want, all the lipids, all the nucleic acids, and all the, all the, all the, the, the amino acids. All the amino acids. They said, no, we can't do it. Okay, we'll hook the amino acids into whatever protein structure you want. We'll give you the DNA in whatever order structure you want. Can you then just assemble those into a cell? The answer would be no. They can't do it. Nobody can do it. You say, well, they've heard of synthetic cells. That's where, where, where Craig Venter's team, what they did is they took one piece out of one cell and put it into another. So it's like if I buy two Corvettes and I take the computer control box out of one and I stick it in the other. And I go, hey, I made that car. No, you didn't. You just took one piece out of one and put it in the other. That's all you did. That's what, what people call synthetic cells, and that's not real. They haven't done anything but take one piece out of a living system putting it into another living system. All right, so here's the type of books that are sold to people. 
This is the type of books that our, our children read in school. Life began with little bags of garbage, random assortments of molecules doing some crude kind of metabolism. This is stage one. The garbage bags grow and occasionally split into two, and the ones that grow and the fast grow and split fastest win. This is the description of how life came about, and this is what we teach our children in schools. All right? Well, few origin of life researchers would state it so shamelessly. Nonetheless, little bags of garbage are precisely what they've been making. Those little bags of garbage have no more resemblance to living cells than a big bag of garbage resembles a horse. It's not real. All right, so how close have researchers come to making an artificial cell? <clears throat> so this is not articles that, that, that most people would normally read. This is what I read. So in November 2018, less than a year ago, an article was published in Science saying, biologists created the most lifelike artificial cells yet. So I saw this. I said, well, hey, I want to know what, it, what is the most lifelike artificial cell. So I went to the actual article, which was published in Nature Communications, and then I read it. And so what it talks about is they take semi-porous microcapsules made of plastic. Made of they make plastic. They put some clay in there. Clay has a high affinity to DNA because clay is positively charged. DNA is negatively charged. So they put this in a solution with DNA. So DNA goes through the semi-microporous plastic and sticks to the clay. And then they buy ribosomes, RNA, enzymes, and reagents that they purchase. And they put it into the medium. That diffuses into the cell. And proteins start getting made. Well, you can just buy all these reagents from any chemical company and put them in a test tube. You can put them in a big vat. You can put them in a large vat, like it's done in industry all the time, and proteins would be made. You're taking the machinery of chemicals that you've taken out of a cell, and you're not making any life. You're just making molecules. Molecules don't, but you're just making life. And they say <clears throat> that the molecules that are closest to each other transfer more materials between them, but that's normal diffusion. Whatever's closest gets more. So, so uh, um, things that are nearer to each other get more exposure to th than things that are far away. So, the chemistry of exogenously added reagents will work, regardless of whether the container be a plastic semi-porous microcapsule as they used, or in a test tube or a large industrial vat. So it is far from the press-type claim of gene expression and communication rivaling that of living cells. There is no rivalry here. One might arguably agree that these are indeed the most lifelike artificial cells, but that only serves to underscore the point. Nobody has ever come close to the generating the workings of life. These little microcapsules were not cells. They just packed it up with chemicals, and you're just doing chemistry in there. There's no life. None. None. That's the most lifelike ever in the literature. <clears throat> okay, so I liken it to fool's gold. Uh, um, <clears throat> alchemists used to try to make gold. What they tried to do is they tried to take iron and turn it into gold. And what you could do is you could take sulfur... They found that they could take sulfur and they could, <clears throat> they could add it to iron. And then the sulfur would start forming pyrite. And they knew it wasn't gold because it didn't have the same melting point. It didn't have the same ductility. But it looks like gold. So they thought, hey, we're really on to something. So they started adding sulfur to all these other elements. You can add sulfur all day to any element. It's not going to turn into gold. The only way you can turn iron into gold is you've got to change a lot of number. You have to add a lot of protons to it. And there you need a nuclear reactor, which is way more expensive than gold. So, 
you say, well, <clears throat> so we have to say we need a timeout. So I'm calling for a timeout. And so I'm calling on the, the, the origin of life community to just say stop a minute. We have to understand where's life code come fr comes from, roots to the complex assembly and interactomes that are essential to cellular life, the whole mass throughput in synthesis. Alternatively, we have to have some conjectures as to why none of this is needed. So here we're strapped, we have no idea how to get life. We are clueless on this. <clears throat> now we'll look at evolution. All right, so what we talked about was pre-biology, before life. You can't have evolution till you have life. Before life, where did life start? Now we'll talk about evolution because we hear a lot about this in our schools. So here's the definition of evolution, not by me, but by my colleagues who talk about this, they say evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. So remember, evolution is the mechanism and the universal, universal common descent. It's no longer random mutation and natural selection. They've done away with that. They know that that wouldn't account for it. If that's still in your school books, your school books are behind. That Darwinian theory of natural selection and random mutation, no way. It, it's, uh, it's about the mechanism and universal common descent. Much more than random mutation, it is, they're talking about these slow changes that occur from parent to child to grandchild and so forth. These slow, neutral drift, it's called. Now, universal common descent is an amazing theory which has a lot going for it. I will concede that. But let's look deeply here. Common descent versus uncommonness. So humans have 20,000 protein-coding genes. That means there are these segments within our DNA that prescribe the prescription for the making of proteins. Those proteins are nature's little nanomachines that make the molecules. We have 20,000 segments that make all the, the, the enzymes for us so that when you ate a donut this morning, it becomes a part of your ear by this afternoon. How does that happen? Well, these enzymes that break it down and apply it where it needs to be. There's nature's little nanomachines. But it turns out these protein-coding genes are only 1.5% of the entire DNA. So it's within the 1.5% that all of common descent, well, most common descent studies are based. A large-scale project was instituted in 2003 by the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute. That's not a Christian organization that is put together by the National Institutes of Health, called the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, or ENCODE, to determine the remaining 98.5% of the DNA. So 1.5% of the DNA prescribes all of this. And they said the other 98.5% is junk. It used to be called junk DNA. You may have heard that term. Well, they no longer call it junk. They call it intergenic regions. There's ENCODE evidence that part or even much of the intergenic regions have regulatory elements that can affect gene transcription, the building of RNA which builds the enzymes. So in other words, all of the common descent studies were based upon 1.5% of the DNA. There's another 98.5% of the code within us that's different. So when people said we were 99.9% the same as a chimpanzee, the answer is yes. If you look at 1.5% of our DNA, the differences come in the other 98.5%. Yeah. So uncommonness is noted in the intergenic regions, not the common 1.5%. There's also orphan genes cast new light. These are unique genes that are, that are specific to a narrow taxon, often a, a discrete species. 
there are genes that are specific. So again, we're getting to uncommonness, not commonness. <clears throat> if you look at the uncommon human being, humans alone have the capacity for art, music, advanced communication, advanced mathematics, religious practice, which constitute the broader organization of symbolism. Therefore, if one is intent upon a common descent model, there was a massive and presently unexplainable infusion, intrinsic or extrinsic, along the proposed very short descent pathway between Australopithecines and humans. So if you look at, 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 at common descent, it's believed that we, we come, so that, there, that we don't come from chimpanzees, we share a common ancestor, and then it was believed that we come down, and then there's Australopithecines and Neanderthals, and we come right after them. But if that's the case, what happened between Australopithecines and us? Something happened in our brain that we can't discern, yet we have all of this symbolism where we, we have advanced mathematics, communi advanced communication, music, art. I can tell anybody in here, go outside, go to the right, go 10 feet, and to your right in a little hole in the wall, and to the right side in that hole, you'll find a piece of paper. Try to explain that to a monkey like that. They'd be like, huh? I mean, we, we have this advanced communication, and, and uh, nobody understands how that happens. If there was an infusion put into our brains, then the requisite anatomical and chemical differences between the modern human brain and hominid brains are presently indiscernible and unfathomable. The chemical basis of evolutionary mechanisms, remember, evolution is about mechanism and universal common descent. We just showed that 98.5% of the DNA is very, very different. There is uncommonness. And now the mechanism is unknown. The mechanism here is unknown. If the infusion were extrinsic, meaning coming from the outside, then the materialist evolutionist and the supernaturalist share some common ground. If you look at the mechanism, the body plan, body plan is, 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 is easily described. So, so our limbs are different in their, in their disposition than, say, a tiger's limbs. Our limbs are very... So how do you get body plan changes? How does this happen? Nobody knows. And the mechanisms are totally unknown. Nobody understands these mechanisms. So there's a mechanism problem. Any massive functional change of a body part will require multiple concerted lines of, of evolution. Nobody understands how this was done. One day we might know. People say, well, you know, we, we just don't know yet. One, granted, one day we might know. But as of today, we don't know. So when it comes to evolution of a complex system, evolutionary biology has been reduced to storytelling with little chemical mechanistic data to support the claims, and I deal with it all the time. So I ask my colleagues, show me the mechanisms for evolution of a complex system. And they will all present to me the immune system. The immune system morphs based on what it's presented to. But my argument is the immune system remains an immune system. It never became a digestive system, it never became an auditory system, it never became an optical system. It remained the system that it is. So you're telling me stories, but you're not showing me any mechanism. I'll, I'll get you the mechanism. And either they never contact me again, or if I keep pushing them, they say, well, you can look it up yourself. I said, I tried, I haven't found it. And then they give me a whole download dump from, from Google, and none of it has a mechanism. This happens all the time. So if you say the mechanisms are there, I challenge you to find the mechanisms before you say they are there. Find them. That means you show the chemicals that are reacting to make these changes to do this. We're collectively clueless. Therefore, I don't understand the mechanisms needed 
to change body plans or the mechanisms along the descent pathway between Australia Pleistocene brain and modern human brains if we were indeed commonly descended as predicted by the theory of universal common descent. And nobody else understands either. Nobody. But unlike most, I'm saying it publicly. This is what we're up against. And I'm not speaking of a god of the gaps here. So now I'm done with this presentation as far as that goes. I'm going to talk about God of the gaps. So as a scientist, I would never say that we'll never know. One day in the distant future, we might understand life's origin and evolution of a complex system. We might. I can't, as a scientist, I can't say that. As a pastor, you can say all sorts of things. As a scientist, I can't say that. My words are, you know, I'm really held accountable for what I say here. But what I can say, that won't lessen God. That'll just make him all the more magnanimous. I will just say, wow, Lord, that's how you did it. This is amazing. So just because we don't know today, I'm not saying we'll never know, but, I'm, but what's happening is scientists will project as if we know it today and then speak condescendingly if you don't buy into it. You don't know either, Mr. Scientist. You don't know either. Because I've asked you for the mechanism, you couldn't give it to me. I've asked you for how life began, you can't give it to me. So you don't know either. So, have so-called scientific facts ever been shown to be wrong? Does the universe have a beginning? Scientific fact changed, quote-unquote, fact changed in 1964. In the 1950s, the vast majority of scientists believed that the universe never had a beginning. There were inklings of that, that it may have had a beginning, but it wasn't until, until 1964 with microwave background radiation that they realized the universe had a beginning, which is actually a lot more biblical. But it wasn't until 1964. Quote-unquote, fact change in 1964. Darwinian theory to punctuated equilibrium. Scientific fact change in 1972. Darwin said things came gradually, slowly, slowly, slowly. In that fact change in 1972, Eldridge and proposed that the degree of gradualism commonly attributed to Charles Darwin is virtually non-existent in the fossil record. These quotes are right from Wikipedia. Virtually non-existent. In other words, they're saying that very little happens in over a short period of like 100,000 years, there's massive change. So their facts changed in 1972. 1980, it was believed prior to 1980 what killed off dinosaurs was climate change. And then came the Alvarez hypothesis in 1980 that an asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula. It already enriched, threw dirt up into the air. That filled the air that is with dirt and the sun's rays couldn't get through. All the plants died. The herbivores therefore died. The carnivores that fed on them died. And that's what killed off the dinosaurs. That quote-unquote fact changed in 1980. How long ago did dinosaurs die off? Well, if, if, if you look at it, they'll say 66 to 75 million years ago. 66 million years ago, they died off. Well, in 2007, Mary Higby Schweitzer, a paleontologist at NC State, led a group that discovered the remains of blood cells in dinosaur fossils and later discovered soft tissue remains in Tyrannosaurus rex specimens. Nobody believed her. And now we found lots and lots of those. Can you imagine blood cells still remaining? 75 million years? So people are like, whoa, I don't know when the dinosaurs died off. It's confusing. It's yeah, it's really confusing. So we put things out as facts that aren't facts. A scientific fact, water, H2O, has two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. That is a fact. It will never change anywhere you go in the universe. So there are facts. There has never been discord between scientific facts and statements in the Bible, so there's no need to reconcile them. There's no discord between a scientific fact and a statement in the Bible. So-called scientific facts, which are really theories, are constantly changing, even on the orders of decades, and certainly on the orders of a century. 
So trying to twist the Bible to fit with scientific theory is a frustrating endeavor. Don't let professors with the bold claims of facts upset you. Theories or conjectures are not facts. But unfortunately and shamefully, many professors themselves do not make the necessary distinction. This leads to the confusion of generations of students and even professors themselves. I speak to professors all the time. These poor souls are so confused. And all I have to do is ask three or four questions, and they're so frustrated they want to walk away. To the student inundated with misinformation, I say this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3 and 4 is God's proclamation concerning false prophets. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must serve, must revere. Keep his commandments, obey him, serve him, and hold him fast. Remember, the Lord your God is testing you to see whether you really love him or not. So I want to tell you briefly so that you can get to know me, how did I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, when I was, when I was 18 years old, I went to college. And, and a young man was doing laundry in the laundry room. I'm from a Jewish home in New York City, a very secular Jewish home. And, and, uh, and he wanted to share with me the message of the gospel. And I said, go ahead, share. I had no idea what he was going to talk about. He had me read this verse. First, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And I know to Christians this is like, you know, every, every thought, you know, Jews don't worry about that. We go to Yom Kippur, which is just coming. Yom Kippur, once a year, go to the synagogue, you're good to go for the rest of the year. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I, I said, I'm not a sinner, so he showed me this verse from the Bible. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that hit me. That hit me hard. For a few reasons. I was 18 years old. That was one of them. The, the other one, I was addicted to pornography from the age of 14. I started working in a gas station just outside New York City at the age of 14, and the, the salesmen would throw away their magazines on the way home. There was no internet in those days. And I became addicted to pornography. And, you know, this was, this was like my life. And, and, uh, and I knew from that moment that I was a sinner. As soon as I read that. He shared with me, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. It's nothing you can do. I remember he drew these arrows. This was drawn on a piece of paper. There were no iPads, no iPhones in those days. And, and uh, um, by faith, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a, it is a gift of God. So this is a gift that you get through faith. It's, a, it's an unusual gift. You receive this gift by believing it. This gift you get by believing it. For by the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and uh, uh, again, it says it's this free gift. God offers a free gift. And I remember he said, this death is eternal separation from God. You are eternally separated. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I remember he drew this cross. He demonstrates his love in that while we're yet sinners, this is for sinners. If you're not a sinner, this is not for you. Get your salvation somewhere else. The Bible clearly says Christ died for the ungodly. If you're godly, this is not for you. Go somewhere else. Christ died for the ungodly. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the most amazing verse. You confess it with your mouth, you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection.
So that gets us to God. Night of November 7th, 1977, I was in that room all alone. That was my dormitory room. My roommate wasn't there. He had shared with me in August. Now it's November 1977. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, come into my life. Forgive me because I'm a sinner. And I felt this forgiveness coming over me and this burden of sin that I had been carrying. Just, And then all of a sudden, someone was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes to see who was standing in my room. And I couldn't see anybody, but right there was Jesus Christ showering love upon me. And my life changed at that moment. I didn't want to get up. I just started weeping like a baby, which was very unusual for me. And God visited me that day in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He just showered me with blessings. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I composed myself. I didn't tell anybody for two weeks. This guy who shared with me saw me on the floor. He said, Jim, have you received the Lord? I said, I think, you ha- I, think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me on that day. I bring you back to this. God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins, God says. He says, I do it for my own sake. Some people feel that they're too bad of sinners. They couldn't, they couldn't do this. Look, if my son went to jail, I would go and bail him out. If he says, Dad, I deserve to be here, I would say, too bad. You're my son. You're coming out. We'll deal with that later. God says the same thing. For my own sake, I'm going to forgive your sins. For my own sake, God forgives. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I see at least one person a week come to the Lord every week. And I only deal with the educated. I deal with students at Rice. I deal with professors. I deal with young physicians from the medical center. across. Every week I see at least one person saved. If I don't see one person saved a week, my heart is broken. And it just tears me up. And then God will give me like five the next week. But they're all educated. How do you get an educated person to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. He ate. He fellowshiped with his disciples. He said, come, touch me. He ate in front of them. They put their fingers in the holes in his hand. They put their hand in the hole in his side. He said, touch me. See, you have bones and flesh. He rose physically from the dead. How do you get an educated person to believe in a physical resurrection? That's hard. Because we've never seen it. I see people every week, educated people, highly educated, go from not believing in the resurrection to believing in the resurrection in a 10-minute conversation. And the only way that I can explain this is, is this, that the truth of the resurrection has already been placed on your heart. It's already there. It is just the confession of what's already there, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. God would never put so high a hurdle for us to believe in something that's so incredible unless He had already placed it there. So I ask you this day, if you do not know the Lord, confess to what's already there, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and come to know Him today. Let's pray. Abba, my Father, I commit these fine people to you in the name of Jesus. Father, for those here who do not know you, I ask you, Lord, to come into their lives. Lord, that they would pray with me this very moment. Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that he has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this salvation. Thank you, Lord. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me. Thank you, Lord God. And Father, I pray for the young students here who are so inundated with, with theories and told that these are facts. Father, protect them. 
guard their hearts. And Father, for those here who are educators, Father, I pray that they would see that which is known versus that which is unknown. And let it be taught in that way. Father, your grace, your grace be upon them. And Father, for the believers here, draw them closer to you. And for anyone who has been drawn astray, believing that, that, that science has in some way disproved the Bible, Father, draw them back because every word in the Bible is true. Every word. It is your word. Every word in that book is true. Glory be to your name. And Lord, I commit this church to you for the glory of Jesus and in your name. Amen.